The Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes this, If I were to summarize the message of the Feast of Tabernacles, I'd say it's a tutorial on how to live life with insecurity and yet still celebrate life. Today's passage in our Lent reading and Lent journal is in John chapter 7, 1 through 24, and that's our gospel passage today. And in the heading of your Bible, it might say the feast or festival of tabernacles, the feast or festival of booths. Um, If you know a lot about Jewish culture, it's called Sukkot, and I probably said that very wrong, and all my Hillel friends rightfully are upset. But especially if you're an American University student, you spend any time on campus, it's that time of the year when right by the student union, MGC, there's like that hut that has like three walls but not four that's on the steps on the way to the bookstore. And basically, that's the setting for chapter seven, not the little hut by the AU bookstore, but that festival, that feast and What I love that we've been reminded of in this series so far, and Alexis did a great job of it last week, is that, man, our God is the God of both fasting and feasting. And that seems complex because it is. He wants us to engage in the disciplines, but he also wants us to be in a place of delight and of remembering. In the life group that Danny and I lead together, we've been thinking a lot of Man, we value the revelation of God through Scripture, but do we also practice recollection or remembering what He's done or how He's moved, and does that propel us to trust God even more? So what's really interesting about John chapter 7 is that Jesus is about to be uh, celebrating this feast or this festival, and really the word is, is hut, and it's a reminder that they're there's a, they were an exilic people. They were in exile, God's chosen people in the most of the Old Testament. And it's still celebrated by um, most Jewish people today. And usually there's a hut that's constructed and people would take their meals in that hut or they would spend some of their day in that hut depending on where they lived and what the temperature was. And it was a reminder that even when you're outside, even when there can be forces of nature coming against you, there's, there's a sense of both insecurity but also trust. Trust. And when I read that from the rabbi, I, I realized that that describes kind of the situation that we're in, that we need to become experts at living in a place of insecurity, but also in a place where we're still celebrating life and still celebrating what God is doing. And sure, we've all been through difficult circumstances in our life and story, but man, from the pandemic to racial injustice to recognizing that our health system may not be as strong as we once thought it was, we are in a precarious position. And this feast, this festival will teach us, will be a tutorial on how do we recognize the insecurity in the reality of life, but still find joy and still find hope. Well, I want to read the passage, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of backdrop of of this is kind of the context and the setting for which Jesus is eventually going to end up being and speaking at at the temple in Jerusalem. And we'll get there. So here we go. John chapter 7 verses 1 through 24. It's a good chunk of text, but I promise it'll read pretty easily. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, verse 2, and we just talked about it, Jesus' own brother said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, they said. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. 
Verse 5, there's the twist. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Let's keep reading in verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here, for, for you any time will do. The world, it cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testified that its works are evil. You go to the festival, but I'm not going to go up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. Verse 10, however, after his brothers had left to the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was a widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. Verse 13, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Here's the next kind of subplot of the story in verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answers in verse 16, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so for personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. He, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Verse 20, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you all are amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, and then in parentheses, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. All right, so there's so much happening in this story, in these verses. And there's just a few things that I want us to highlight beginning in the earlier parts of that passage. What's amazing about reading in the New Testament, the book of James, is realizing the story of transformation that took place in the life of James, the brother of Jesus, because at this point in the story, he did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. That's why those first few verses is like this sibling rivalry where they're basically mocking Jesus saying, now is your time to shine. Why don't you go do it? Not because they believed him or were encouraging him, but because of their disbelief. And so that's a really interesting thing to know early in the passage. And then Jesus decides not to go to the festival immediately, not to go publicly, but he decides to go privately a few days later than most. Well, what I want to circle back to is how people are responding to Jesus thousands of years ago in the middle of this religious city of Jerusalem on the way to a festival in the temple. Here's what they are saying about him. Some are saying he's a good man in verse 12. And then others are saying, no, he deceives the people. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's trilemma. It's this apologetics question of logic. And he basically makes this case, which I believe to be true, that Jesus is one of the three things. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either lying about who he says he is. He's either a lunatic in that he falsely believes what he says he is, even though he's not, or he's Lord, he is true. And what I love about C.S. Lewis's exposition on the person historically of Jesus is that, I mean, if you're going to be a person 
whether you believe or not, if you're going to be intellectually honest, those are really the only three answers that you can give. Because if you believe that he was a good man, well, that doesn't make much sense. If you believe he's a good teacher, that's kind of a cop-out because he said, like, I am the way to the Father. Like, he said some things that if, if they weren't true, they're very troubling. So what I love about the honesty of this passage is that there's already this sense where people are trying to sanitize or kind of minimize the powerful aspects of the person of Jesus by saying, well, I think I think he's a good person. But I love how in 12b, the more honest response is someone saying, well, actually, I think he deceives the people. And I don't believe Jesus is deceiving anybody, but I think that that's a more intellectually honest approach to the person of Jesus in all that he is, in his miracles, in his message, in his death, and in his resurrection. And then verse 13 says this, But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. I think this is really appropriate for us today, really personally applicable for me. Because there are circumstances, whether it's relationships, whether it's certain groups of friends, whether it's at your job or in your classes, where you fear speaking up about Jesus because of what others would say about you. For you, it's probably not the ruling religious elite who are in charge of the Jewish temple. Like That's probably not an intersection of your life right now. But whether it's a relative, a mentor, a boss, a coworker, or a roommate, you find yourself like these people saying, I mean, I can't really speak up. I'm not really going to say anything. I'm not going to interject because I'm, I'm afraid of what people might say. And in this passage, we quickly come to find out that there's kind of two themes that are running through these 24 verses. The first is this idea that there's, there's Jesus and he's not against the world. It's not Jesus versus the world, but it's kind of Jesus vis-a-vis the world or in comparison or contrast to the world. And then later in the passage, this other theme comes up and it's this idea of appearance versus substance. Some people say style versus substance or form versus substance. But it's this this thing that Jesus gets at in verse 24. He's saying like, you guys are judging based on appearances instead of the substance of who I am and what I'm doing. It's also important to note that, man, Jesus takes their interpretation of Moses and the patriarchs to task, and he does so during the high holidays. If you think Jesus isn't willing to speak his mind, you have not read the gospel accounts. He's basically saying, not only do you value the law of Moses higher than me, that you don't even follow it, that's around verse 20, and then he says, well, you're willing to follow parts of the law when they're in contrast to other parts, in this case, circumcising a young boy on the Sabbath. And then he's saying, but you're not allowing me the same freedoms when I bring complete healing to a grown man on the Sabbath. And so he's pointing out, not that there are contradictions in the law, but that there are contradictions in how people interpret and apply the law. And how appropriate for today that Jesus is reminding us that he is a person of substance. He's bold. And as a follower of Jesus, we're called to also grow into that same personhood. See, being a Jesus follower, yes, it's about following him. And then it's about being formed into that same image. We read more about that in Paul's letters, particularly in his letter to the church at Rome in chapters 6 through 8. Well, I got to be honest, when I was reading this passage, getting prepared to speak today, I was really convicted about something, about a time where I was fearful of speaking up about Jesus, about something I believe because of what others would say 
about me. And actually this conviction, it started on Instagram. I know there can be redeeming values. And it was from um, the AND campaign. And it was Justin Gibney that said this. He said, many Christians who are rightly promoting social justice have become conspicuously quiet or ambiguous on the sanctity of life. I fear it's because secular academics and activists frown on it. Wielding influence in Christian spaces while seeking secular validation is dangerous. Man, I got on Instagram that day just to waste a few minutes or an hour, and I felt so convicted, right? And this may not be directly related to you, but for me, man, I realized that I have become conspicuously quiet or ambiguous on the sanctity of life out of fear, which is never a good motivation. And Justin had read my mail exactly. It's my fear of secular academics and activists. And, and I share that very personal story because, man, it, it doesn't matter who you're afraid of or what you're afraid of happening. If fear is the motivating decision on how we engage with people and with faith, we've already lost. If fear is the reason we don't say something or we say something that we really don't fully believe, man, we are already abdicating. We're already giving up the power of our witness. By the way, I love that that's the image that Jesus reminds the disciples. And even after his resurrection, when they officially become the apostles, he's just asking them to be a witness. What have you seen? What have you heard? What have I done in you? Would you tell others about that? Well, getting back to the latter part of this passage, Jesus is pointing out the contradiction. And he does this often with the religious rulers of the day. He's saying, you're more concerned with outward appearances than you are with the inner life. One point in the Gospels, he says, I'm glad that, that you as religious leaders tithe, you give 10% of your spices, which that's pretty radical. He's like, you're tithing off of your spice rack, and yet you're not helping those in need that sit outside of the temple courts and ask for your help. He's saying, it looks like you have it together. It seems like you're meticulous about obedience, but you're missing the point. Your inner life isn't one of generosity and isn't one of compassion. Here, here, here's the reality, and I wrote this down uh, kind of in this journal, and, and it was kind of, man, the personal reflection on this passage for me, is the moment that Jesus stops changing me and challenging me is the moment that I've actually stopped following Jesus and instead followed a mirage of him, one that is flimsy, one that lacks power, but one that feels comforting in the moment. See, the controversy that's unfolding during this festival in John 7 is this controversy of doing things right versus doing the right things. Does that make sense? Like, it wasn't common practice to heal on the Sabbath, just like it wasn't common practice to circumcise on the Sabbath. But at some point, we have to make a decision between looking right and being right, or doing things right and doing the right things. In other words, there comes a point in our faith stories when the decision point is this. We have to make a decision to say, I would rather fail when aiming at truth than succeed at something less. That's one of my greatest fears as a pastor, as a parent, is that I would succeed in all the wrong places and fail in the places that really matter. That I would succeed outwardly, but fail 
inwardly. My pastor, Mark, he says it like this. After writing dozens of best-selling books, he says, I will know the measure of my life and story if I'm most famous, most respected in my own home. And I love that picture because the people that are closest to us know us most fully. That's why I think it was a little bit difficult for the brothers of Jesus, including James, to recognize he was the Messiah, right? They had a similar upbringing. They had a similar trade skills of being carpenters. They have memories of him as a child. And it took them a long time to engage with the reality of who he was. In fact, one commentator said that the the Gospel of John is interesting because it opens up with somebody doubting. In this case, we see his brothers are doubting. We see others have doubted who he claims to be. And then it ends, spoiler alert, with Thomas, the doubter, believing. And so I'm encouraged by the trajectory of the Gospel of John because the Gospel isn't just for those that would accept it willy-nilly. It's for those that have wrestled with it. Those that are saying, man, I did not believe, but I'm starting to believe. It reminds me of that old refrain, God help me even in my unbelief. The heart of it is this, that the appearances don't tell the full story. I'm not an expert on art, and fun fact, both of my siblings went to art school, so even though I can take a photo on my iPhone, I am far from their level of expertise and talent. But I was reading this week about one of the most famous art forgers, and his last name was Megarin, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, but stick with me. But he was really famous for doing paintings um, and then passing them off as Vermeer's. And that may mean very little to you, but it was one of those things where I started to look side by side at these paintings. And like, if I took a quiz on which one was the authentic Vermeer and which one wasn't, I would have chosen Megarin's counterfeits every time because he was actually more talented most people consider today more talented than Vermeer. In fact, most of Megarin's paintings, even though they're forgeries, are sold for more money than an authentic Vermeer. There's this one picture um, that I love, and we might put it on the screen, or you can look at the story later. But there's this one picture of uh, the painting, the woman in blue reading a letter, um, and then it's contrasted to the same figure painted in the woman reading. Now, clearly, there's a lot of copycats going on, and we definitely should not steal someone's work. But as I looked at the pictures, like, you can see where the talent is. In my mind, in the mind of many art critics, it's in Megrin, who, who just wasn't appreciated, who had his own personal problems, and there's a greater story there. But it's another example of where, by appearances, he seems to be the real deal. But in reality, the substance, the originality, the initiation of creativity on the canvas is Vermeer. See, there are going to be times in your life, in your story, when something appears to be good, it appears to be God's will, it looks nice and shiny, you're even doing a pros and cons list, and it's way ahead. But man, sometimes the appearance of things do not give an accurate representation of the reality within. You don't have to get on Twitter for any amount of time to find out that there are people that claim to be leaders, pastors, followers of Jesus, who outwardly in appearance are great ministers, but inwardly and to those that are close to them are living lives that are completely against the gospel, that cause harm to people, that their fruit is broken people, thousands of people who they've left in shambles because they have been celebrated by their appearance and they weren't people 
of substance. In an Instagram world, as visual learners, especially as most of our life is experienced behind screens, there's a real temptation to focus more on curating our appearance versus developing our character. There's this temptation to promote or to, to put out an image of who we wish we were instead of being honest with who we really are. Jesus is interrupting this festival and he's saying, you focused on appearances and you've judged me by that, but I want you to judge by the substance. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, it's not that Christianity is found unhelpful or untrue, but it's mostly found untried. Basically, he's saying that many people reject Christianity because of the appearance of what it is and haven't fully wrestled with the reality of the substance of who Jesus is and what does it look like for a beloved community to follow after him, living out this gospel message of reconciliation and changed lives. Back to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. If I were to summarize the message of this feast or festival, I'd say it's a tutorial on how to live with insecurity and still celebrate life. I was looking into those huts that they build even today to commemorate this feast and and they really leave them either kind of partially open. They don't build walls all around. And it's like this reminder that as you experience the wind, the rain, the temperatures, man, that you would be both in touch with the reality of what is and the possibility of what could be in God. That you would see the, the difficulty of life, but also have an image that you're holding in contrast as God as provider. That is a very difficult exercise and it is no longer hypothetical for any of us. But if we're going to follow Jesus closely and lead others to do the same, we have to find ourselves in a position of being in touch with reality and being in relationship with the Creator. We can no longer ignore the problems and troubles of those around us in a false kind of picture of joyful substanceless, appearance-driven Christianity. But we can't also swing to the other end of things where we're so engaged in the suffering and in the real of the world that we've started to doubt the goodness of God. I was, um, you know, online the other day reading some um, news and there was, I don't know when this was, somewhat recently, there was an MLK celebration where... Um, Pastor Warnock, who's the senator-elect, was speaking at online at this um, synagogue, and hackers actually like interrupted the service, which is like so 2020 slash 2021. But I was reading the full transcripts of his remarks, and I love what he said about Nehemiah. He said, Nehemiah, that bold, brilliant, and trailblazing brother who set out during difficult days to rebuild that which was broken. He saw a big problem and decided to do something about it. And then this next part of his commentary on Nehemiah felt so groundbreaking to me. He said, Thank God for Nehemiah who was cupbearer for the king. And therefore he had a prized location. He was relatively comfortable. He was cupbearer. He had a government job that was good. But he was more concerned about those who were uncomfortable, those who were unprotected. And that's not just the story of Nehemiah. That's the story of Jesus. Jesus is concerned with those 
who have not been at the center of attention by the majority of people. Jesus is all the time getting in trouble for hanging out in the margins of religious life in Jerusalem and Galilee and Nazareth. And it's because he's not choosing to accept the cultural definition of who's valued and who's not. And that's where our theology of being made in the image of God comes into play, the Imago Dei. Lately, I've been reflecting on this question as I've thought through my own faith life, and I've thought through Christianity in our current context. When we read the Genesis creation narratives, it's very easy to emphasize original sin and sin nature, and that's in the text for sure. But before sin occurs, before broken relationship transpires, there's full relationship, there's union, and God declares that we are good. I think most of us lack compassion in our spiritual lives because we've overemphasized original sin instead of appreciated original blessing. Instead of understanding that, man, C.S. Lewis was right. He says, we know we never meet a mortal. We always meet immortal souls with an eternal destination. Man, the people that are around you, whether you're at the dorms and, and you're one of the few that was able to move in, whether you're living off campus in an apartment, whether you're still at home and it feels like, oh, when am I ever going to move out? I mean, the people that are around you, your family, your friends, that roommate that you don't like that always uses your stuff, man, those are spiritual beings that we have the ability to walk with. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for people of substance. They're not looking for someone who has it all together or who gives that appearance, but they're looking for someone who's broken but redeemed, someone who is in process, someone who is not okay but is also not content with staying there. For a long time in ministry, I thought that my role, my job was to be like, Five steps ahead and show the way. But the more I'm in it, the more I'm learning, man, I'm a fellow traveler. And more people actually will relate to your failure than they will your success. I was talking about it a few weeks ago with a friend, but probably one of the first times where students kind of lined up after I gave a sermon uh, wasn't during a sermon where I thought I hit a home run. It was a sermon where I had opened up about my mental health concerns and issues in my own story. And I would love to not talk about that stuff at some point in my ministry. But what I realized is that, man, students, even non-students, they connect in with with who we are more than who we're trying to be. They connect in with the reality of our struggle instead of a Christian cliche that spiritual bypasses our current reality and unintentionally theirs as well. As we think about sharing the gospel, as we think about living out Lent in proximity to those who might be far from God, it's not about having all the answers. It's about being honest that we're broken, that we are not, that we are not perfect, and that we are still in need of a Savior. One of the things that we get wrong about evangelism is that we preach that people who don't have Jesus need a Savior. And forget that those of us who, who do have Jesus in our lives, we need Him to save us all the time. We don't ever graduate from being reminded of the gospel. And our need for transformation on this side of eternity never stops. We continually need to be reminded of who we are and whose we are and who he's shaping us to be. All right, back to our passage for just a moment. What's really interesting is Jesus is saying in verse 16, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one 
who sent me. Verse 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And if Jesus can take that posture, so can we. He says, I'm going to be honest about how I see the world, but it's really not about me at all. It's about the Father. And then now we can say, man, I'm going to be a witness. I'm going to testify. I'm going to say what I believe is true. And it's really not about me or my thoughts or another op-ed. It's about how the Holy Spirit's worked. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what God the Father has done. What I love about following Jesus is that we find ourselves, man, a part of a strong family that's existed for a long time. And it can be real easy to jump on the defensive or get into an argument But man, the reality of the brokenness in our world is that people are looking for those who would be more about substance and appearance and who would reflect on the realities of this feast or festival, living openly, transparently, and honestly with the insecurity of life while also finding things to celebrate in life. As we worship together, I want to encourage you to remember the boldness, remember the power of Jesus' word and witness, and just for a moment, imagine what would it look like if you walked more emboldened, if you didn't fear what others said, and you lived for Jesus, how might that make a difference in those around you? As we reflect on that, let's worship together.